TED Audio Collective. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Canva. HBR presents. Hi, you're listening to After Hours. This is me here. And this is Rowie. This is Rebecca. Hey, how are you all? Spring, in a word, spring is here. <laughs> spring is here. You know, I was just thinking that since Felix isn't here, we should probably talk about him. Yeah, we should totally do that. Because look what I got my little grubby hands on. Oh. How did you get it already? Felix has got a new book. It's called Better Simpler Strategy, and it's fantastic. Mm. And I got to tell you, Felix is such a wonderful, modest person. He's not going to like plug the book. That's true. But I think in his absence, we have to like wage some kind of a campaign so his pre-order ranking on Amazon goes way up. I think that's a fabulous idea. And it's such a good title for a book as well, like better than the title of something I've been working on, Complicated Worst Strategy. So like this is like (laughs) got to be the right thing to read next. Absolutely. And it's even got a nice picture of him in the back. Take a look at that. Isn't that nice? Handsome devil. So yes, it is fantastic. Everybody should be out there pre-ordering Felix's new book. Absolutely. So we got stuff to talk about, Rebecca. What do you got? I want to talk about politics in Georgia. And suddenly a whole bunch of CEOs are standing up and saying they care about democracy. What's with that? (laughs) Wow. Let's figure that one out. (laughs) Excellent. And Rawi, what do you have? The new Chinese digital currency and how that might reshape economic relations inside China, but maybe in the wider world as well. Like, what does it mean? That's great. So we got politics in Georgia and CEOs speaking out and we got digital renminbi. This is fantastic. Okay, so Rebecca, what is going on in Georgia and what is going on with these CEOs speaking out? So here's the story so far. For the last few weeks, there's been an increasing fuss in the political class about legislation that the Georgia legislature has been first proposing and has now passed to either reform or restrict voting rights, depending on who you talk to. Mm-hmm. No one in the corporate sector was speaking out. Yeah. And then... Just last week, 72 black executives published a letter in the New York Times saying that the Georgian law was explicitly discriminatory against black Americans Mm -hmm. and that they personally were coming out against it and that other corporate leaders should too. Right. And within just a couple of days, Delta came out, Coca-Cola came out, Mm -hmm. and people are just jumping on this bandwagon. And I'm like, 
what is happening here? Yeah. Rawi, you're our Georgian on the panel. I am. So you got to help us figure this out. I feel like this is a really critical moment, not just in the narrative of one state, because there are these efforts to change voting laws all over the country. And Georgia's leading the way in what I consider to be a restrictive new law. Mm -hmm. But I think this is a moment of reckoning for business in American democracy Mm -hmm. and a real understanding that the wide variety of ways in which corporations are involved in politics, and they always have been, will probably have to include having a point of view about the future of the republic and the future of democracy. Yeah. And when you say reckoning, you feel like they've kind of crossed the Rubicon in some way. Is that right, Rawi? Which is they've taken a set of steps to get engaged in what the meaning of democracy is. And that's a good thing. Corporations are inherently political in some sense. They are creations of the state. You know, God didn't give us the corporate form. It is a privilege granted by the state. Corporations have been involved in politics in lots of ways. They lobby. They give political donations. The Citizens United case gave them a kind of personhood in our democratic processes. And so, yeah, now I think there is an opportunity to play a role that could be positive in addition to the various other positive and negative roles the corporations have played. But I'm not sure there's any going back from this. Like you're kind of for voting rights or not for voting rights. And it's a foundational question about how the country functions. Yeah. I don't know. I guess I'm a little bit more confused. I mean, first off, you know, I don't terribly much like the underlying laws, but the laws are still there. I don't think there's anything to celebrate. I'm not sure why I should celebrate CEOs speaking out about it. I don't really celebrate when they speak out about whether they like the corporate tax changes or not. And so I'm not sure why I should celebrate about this. <laughs> and altogether, I'm a little concerned. This inchoate movement to have corporations do more and more and more in society, I think is very, very powerful. But I'm not sure what the bounds of it are. And I think part of what happened this week is we crossed a new boundary. Mm-hmm. And I'm not really sure why I should be excited about it. Do I want corporations to be more political? If you ask me that narrow question, my answer is kind of no. If anything, I might want them to be less. So I know I'm a little bit of an outlier on this because I think people are so excited about what corporations are doing to force social change. But I guess I have an instinct, which is I'm not sure where this goes and I'm not sure where it ends. So I don't know, Rebecca, you've thought much more deeply about this than I have. I really resonate with much of your uncomfortableness. I mean, here I am. I've written a lot saying I think corporations should stand up for voting rights, that our institutions are in trouble, and Mm -hmm. it really matters for the private sector. Mm -hmm. There's a risk to long-term economic growth, and CEOs should get involved, and now it's happening. I find myself a little uneasy, too. Oh, my God. I feel so happy. I'm sorry. I have to just interrupt (laughs) you, Rebecca. That makes me feel so much better about my uneasiness. So here's my uneasiness. If I were designing our society from scratch, which for all kinds of good reasons, we should be glad I'll never get to do, but suppose I were, (laughs) I would have business play as small a role in politics as possible. Right. I think I would say no political spending, lobbying, but it has to be transparent. You have to Mm -hmm. tell us all what you're saying to the politicians. And I, I would want business doing what it does, which is run firms and make money. And I'd want the democracy to be doing what ideally it should be doing, which is, you know, setting the rules and setting the guidelines. And yeah. that's how I would do it from scratch. 
I mean, the reason I write what I do is I think we're at risk of losing the democracy. And not only just here in the US, in many other countries, we want a strong man. And I think that would be disastrous. And so I look to an institution like business and I say, well, this would be bad for you too. So you should say something. But here's what I wish I also saw happening. I wish the CEOs were saying something like, this is up to the voters, but I'm really upset. And I want the CEOs to be saying, it makes me uncomfortable that I'm saying this. Mm. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> no, seriously, right. yeah, I do. Right. I want them to be aware at a meta level of what they're doing and sort of more self-conscious about it. And I'd love for it to be organized in some way so that there was a group of business so that one could have a conversation as opposed to these individual CEOs. It feels it lacks accountability and transparency. Right. I'm all of a sudden like the strident one among the three of us. But let me push you two to consider joining my outrage and enthusiasm a little bit and let go of your unease. Mm -hmm. But it took Delta and Coca-Cola a few days of silence for them to come out with a statement of disappointment. During those days, all sorts of people were threatening to boycott them for essentially being on the wrong side of history. Mm -hmm. And so in the sense of being on the wrong side of history, don't you want to have said something? Like when we look back at the civil rights movement and which business leaders were louder or less loud, I think that there's some value to them for being on the right side of history here. But also now there's a backlash from the right and threatening boycotts against Delta and Coca-Cola for caving into the woke mob. But if we think about just the incentives, it seems like they don't have a choice but to say one thing or the other because there's so much pressure from both sides. This attempt to restrict voting, which is what it seems to be right across the country, there are more than 450 bills out there now. You know, we even have someone in Arizona saying, well, we don't care so much about the quantity of voting. It's really the quality of voters that we want, you know, coming right out and saying it. But I think what was exciting about the letter, and maybe I want the CEOs to be like really like the letter, was it was very clear why they were saying what they were saying. Mm -hmm. yeah. That they weren't just saying, well, we'd happen to like some voting regulation and not others, and we think you're trying to suppress. It was very specific. It mm -hmm. said, these laws are surgically targeted at black Americans. We know their voting patterns, and these laws are designed to make a particular group much less easy to vote. And so it was really being very clear about what the politics were, very clear about what the long-term goal was. It wasn't, I'm just being pushed around because I'm being threatened by a boycott. Mm -hmm. It was clearly, my commitment is to the underlying democracy and in particular to the idea that everyone can participate. And maybe I'm selling the CEOs short, but that kind of thoughtfulness seems to me super important. This is so helpful to me because I think, Rebecca, your framing is similar to mine, which is in a first best world, I don't want this to happen. In the world in which we live, <laughs> like maybe it's the best way to have good things happen in this world. I guess my concern is I don't know where this goes. I don't know where do we now go on gun control laws and corporations speaking out on them? Where do we now go on tax policy? Where do we now go on the virtues of environmental regulations? I mean, what is the natural limit? on the political engagement of corporations and corporate leaders today. And I guess what worries me about it is not just, you know, where are the boundaries? 
this is a very maybe quaint idea, and it's against yours, Rawi, where you know you kind of painted corporations as always being political. But you know, there is an aspect of commerce mm-hmm. which I admire as being beyond the political domain, which is you can like a company's products, like I can like a company's products, and it doesn't have anything to do with whether I'm red or blue. Yeah. And now commerce feels like it's lost that. Now you may say, Rawi, it never had it, me here. You're being naive. It's always <laughs> been political. But you know, there is a sense that commerce plays a role in the world in bringing people together in kind of a neutral fashion. I, I kind of believe that. And we're losing that. So I guess my concerns are, yeah. where are the bounds on this? And then what have we lost in that process? Is there anything that we've lost? Or is it all just a gain from your point of view? I've struggled with this lots of times over the years. Like, I don't like the politics of Chick-fil-A owners, but boy, do they make a good chicken sandwich. And I will definitely have the chicken sandwich when I have the opportunity. But I wonder if we could make ourselves feel better by saying, like, this is just too foundational. This isn't actually a radical leftist agenda. This is democracy. Everybody should vote if they want to vote, and we should make it as easy as possible for them to vote. So this is actually like way, way deep down in like the guts of the system. So Rawi, what's different from that and like public safety and gun control? Yeah. So I could say to you, and now let's just try it out. You know what's foundational, Rawi? Public safety. And so let's have corporations take stands on the way we regulate guns. Mm -hmm. I mean, is that any more or less foundational? I think voting is definitely foundational, but I think you're getting to something, which is like we have big fights about what the Second Amendment means and what a well-regulated militia means and all of that. And I do think that that is foundational and maybe we would be better off if we had a wider conversation that included the most powerful agents of change in the economy in addition to the powerful agents of change that we have in society. I think there have to be a few foundational principles. And I think how we decide who decides is absolutely at the root. Mm -hmm. Who has the power and who gets to make the decisions? That's why democracy is absolutely the foundation. And then we can vote about how we think about a militia and guns. And that's what democracies are for, Mm -hmm. is for holding these kinds of really intense conversations, public safety over economic growth, public safety over freedom. That's what a democracy is for. But if you don't have a democracy, who makes those decisions? And if you don't have a genuine democracy, I mean, the numbers on this are scary. More than 70% of Americans think that the democracy is rigged against them, their vote isn't real, that they have no real participation. Mm -hmm. But I want the CEOs to stand up and say, here's the line. I'm standing up because this is absolutely so fundamental. The society won't work without a real franchise. But otherwise, I'm not doing politics. Something like that. Okay. Okay, I love this idea, which is that you guys are making a very good argument that it is foundational. And because it's foundational, deciding who decides in your language, Rebecca, I think is very powerful. So what about campaign finance? So should corporations be taking a significant role and saying, this is the way campaign finance should be working? Because I got to tell you, that is foundational to how democracy works. Is that what we want? So my ask there, and this is such a good question, is I think business should be advocating aggressively for the repeal of Citizens United and for pulling money out of politics. And when I'm talking to business groups, I say, I understand it has to be mutual disarmament, that none of you can disarm individually, but this is not a good idea. 
Yep. Collectively, you guys should be pushing for major reform of the campaign finance system. And the Electoral College is pretty anti-democratic, Rebecca. Well, exactly. Who decides well, who so, decides? Yeah. Okay, well, so corporations should have a point of view about the role of the Electoral College. <laughs> oh, he's, he's a trap, Rebecca. He's a trap. He's been laying the whole time. No, but this is what I'm concerned about. Seriously, look, I don't like these laws in Georgia either. <laughs> But the question is not whether we like the laws or not in Georgia. The question is what role do corporations play in addressing it? What about this? Delta is based in Atlanta. Coca-Cola is based in Atlanta. As corporate entities, they're so bound up with communities in Georgia with the entire state. Delta, I think, is the largest employer in Georgia. So like, they are so integral to the place. What if we narrowed it down to foundational questions and kind of where you live so that you get to have a view about the political and social environment within which you do business because it's so essential and connected to all of the constituents that you have in a very broad sense, beyond stakeholders, like actual constituents of your home state or hometown. I think that's got to be a huge part of the equation, which is it matters enormously that Delta and Coca-Cola are based there. But for me, it gives rise to the next question, kind of like exit and voice or however you want to think about Mm -hmm. it. At what point does Delta say, you know, that Georgia keeps the law and they keep the law for the next 10 years? At some point, does Delta say, I'm out? Like, do they leave? Is that what you want them to do? You want them to change their hub out of Atlanta, Hartsfield? So talk is cheap. At some point, are you going to say, you know what, you guys got to leave the state? Is that where this goes, Rawi? Because if it's about citizens, I mean, we voice, but sometimes voice is not enough. Sometimes we exit. Like, is that where we're going to go? So, Mihir, I'm super curious. How nervous are you? Because I think there's a scenario, it's just one among many, but there's a scenario where these new laws go into place all over the country. We keep the Electoral College. Voting is restricted. We keep electing a minority government. And that causes all kinds of damage to the society in terms of people feeling they don't have voice, they're not included. It's really frightening. I think I know where you're going. I mean, I think my answer is I believe in the political process and I believe that we've already seen it and it's working and we're going to recover from it. And I believe in that. Now, maybe you're going to say that's naive me here because (laughs) it ain't working, but It is kind of. Mm. We're making different kinds of moves on statehood. We're doing different kinds of things. We're debating it. It's going to go through the Congress. People are going to debate it. Biden is going to push it. He might get elected again. He may not. We're going to push it and push it and push it. I mean, I don't want to be like super cheesy, but like (laughs) the arc of history bends towards justice. And I believe in that. And I'd rather have that mediated by politicians who are duly elected than by CEOs. That's my instinct. There are two major bills in the Congress right now. And the For the People Act would, in fact, make nearly all the state legislation illegal Mm -hmm. if that was to go through. You're saying maybe there's a federal solution. Yeah, there's lots of ways to fix this. I worry about where the lines are. And I worry that we're undercutting political processes because I think actually the solutions are with politicians. That's where we're going to get it solved. So if we were back in Georgia, I might say, Mahir, oh, bless your heart. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I know enough to know that's like the biggest slam you can give in the South, right, Rawi? Am I right? Basically, you're right. <laughs> Our dear listeners, if anybody ever says to you from the South, oh, bless your heart, don't say thank you. Yeah. Like, that's not what they mean. But like when Mitch McConnell initially said, 
I think corporations should stay out of politics. Like literally, I laughed when I read that. <laughs> and then he had to walk it back. But we don't mean don't lobby and we don't mean don't give money to us. <laughs> we just mean maybe we could think about these CEOs also as individual people, not as representatives. Mm -hmm. And you're quoting the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. about the arc of history. Wouldn't you, as an individual, if you had a feeling about where the arc of history was headed and that this was a, like a deviation from where it ought to be headed, wouldn't you want to use the opportunity that you have in your role to say like, actually, you know what? I don't like this and I think we're going to regret it. And I'm not threatening to move. I'm not going to leave Hartsfield International. I'm still going to do my work, but like, I just don't like it. I'm, I'm not in favor of it. Well, and can I double down on that just to make it even more complicated here? I'm afraid I'm piling on, but I think many of these CEOs have spent a lot of the last six months thinking about racism and systemic racism in the US. Yes. And talking to their black employees and trying to understand the history of the massive disadvantage that so many black Americans are under. And then when black colleagues came to them and said, look, this is a deliberate reversal of a hundred years of progress. I think they thought, I cannot stand on the sidelines. I have to say something. Just to be clear, I am a hundred percent with both of you on this. I think it is fantastic for individuals in business to speak their minds about issues of deep moral questions in today's society. Mm -hmm. But this is a little bit more than that. They're speaking in their capacity. Yeah. To your point, Rawi, it was particularly important for the Delta CEO to do it and the Coke CEO to do it. Mm -hmm. And look, I believe this. I mean, I think any individual should speak to the deep moral questions of the day in their capacities as individuals. Yes, hallelujah. But I think we're kidding ourselves if we think that's all this is. This is about jawboning. To your point, Rebecca, it happens over 72 hours because they didn't do some deep introspection into voting legislation. Trust me, they got their ears <laughs> bent. <laughs> and so, but just to be clear, I want to sign up with your idea, Rawi and Rebecca, which is people should speak to the moral issues of the day. But I think this is more than that. No, I think you're right. And I think you're right that... There's no way to separate their roles. Like, you know, exactly. when I called the New York Times and I said, my name is Rowie, and I want to tell you about my views about the new law. And they'd be like, who are you, Rowie? It's like, well, I live at such and such address, and I want to tell you. He's like, well, we're not interested. But I am the CEO of Coca-Cola. So, okay, fine. Let's hear what you have to say, <laughs> which is how they get a voice. <laughs> I came in confused, and I leave uncertain but much more deeply informed. Hmm. Because I want to agree with both of you. <laughs> there's a part of me that's incredibly excited by what's happening. And there's a part of me that's deeply nervous. Mm -hmm. And you yeah. guys have validated both parts. I definitely feel more nervous as a result. I still think we're basically headed in the right direction, but I definitely have more questions that I need to ask myself. Well, and I feel more excited. It is both those feelings. And I think if you don't see that complexity, otherwise, you know, you must be missing a piece of the puzzle. Yeah. Okay, Raleigh, digital currencies. If digital stuff wasn't crazy enough, now we got to mix in some politics. <laughs> the Chinese central bank has just issued a new digital currency, which is not a cryptocurrency. It's just a currency that's digital. So it's not the same as Bitcoin and Ethereum. 
in its like underlying structure. It just is digital. Mm -hmm. And it raises all sorts of interesting questions about why the central bank created it, what it might mean for how transactions are conducted within China, but also how transactions are conducted across country borders with this new digital currency or potentially other new digital currencies issued by central banks. So I want to make sure I understand this. You said this is not like Bitcoin. It's not like Ethereum. So then what is it like? I mean, is it just a digital version of a currency? And by the way, isn't everything already digital with moving money? So what is new here, Robert? Here's my understanding, which is we move money digitally now, but it's still the same claim that it was before. We're just moving it digitally. Right. Whereas this is a different kind of claim. So when a central bank issues a currency, it's a liability that the central bank is issuing. And so this is the first time really that a central bank has issued a digital liability in this way. So that's really, really new. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there are some other differences with Bitcoin. One is that this is not anonymous. So this enhances the ability of the central bank to know who's transacting for which purpose in which direction. It's yep. traceable. And then the other really interesting part of it, leaving aside the fact that it's much harder to counterfeit a digital currency. Yep. But this other part of it that what China has now is a currency with which people can transact directly without including a bank intermediary or any financial intermediary. It just can go between two people. Yeah, It can go across borders between two people. And so what it might mean in the long run, and maybe we can start here with this question, is like, does the possibility of transacting in digital currencies without using the US financial system, without using SWIFT, without using the US dollar at all, is this the beginning of the end of the US dollar's role in the system. So, Ravi, I mean, you've just moved like a couple of steps too fast for me, which is why would it displace the dollar? One part of it that's interesting is that there are lots of people who use the US dollar for transactions in the world and they'd rather not. There are lots of companies, individuals that interact with the US financial system and they'd rather not. And the only reason that they have to is because the dollar is the reserve currency and because the U.S. financial system and its payments clearing system is so important to how the global economy functions. And what that means is that if the United States government sanctions a corporation or an individual, they basically can't do business the simplest way in the ways that they're used to doing because the U.S. system is so important. So this is possibly one way around the kind of centrality of the dollar and the centrality of the U.S. financial system and at the extreme, the ability of the United States to use economic sanctions well beyond the leverage of the U.S. economy as a share of the world economy, but simply based on the dollar-centric system. So this sounds huge. I mean, Mihir, you're the finance one amongst us. If there are a lot of people who want to avoid using dollars and the Chinese can credibly promise to keep it stable, run it clear, Mm -hmm. not use the traceability to create trouble, 
then the answer to your question is yes, this is the end of the dollar-based system. And just to be clear about the stakes, I think, Rawi, what you're pointing to is two things, which is the quote-unquote role of the dollar as a reserve currency undergirds trade. Mm -hmm. You know, this is one of the great phrases in economics. It's also America's exorbitant privilege, Mm -hmm. which is it allows America to borrow at rates that seem remarkably low. It allows us to do all kinds of things because the dollar is so powerful. And this could be a crack in that. So let me kind of come at it as maybe being something perhaps much more benign and perhaps much more positive for everyone. So first off, I kind of like this. (laughs) I got to tell you, I kind of like it and I like all of it. And what do I like about it? I love the idea of a real digital currency that is not the speculative type that is Bitcoin and Ethereum, which as I've expressed before, I don't fully appreciate and I think is a little bit of a speculative vehicle for people. I love the idea that central banks take the best parts of the blockchain and try to incorporate it into the way they manage money supply. I think that's good. Mm -hmm. You know what else is to like about this? It can change the relationship between the government and people. There's no longer the need to be intermediated by banks. Mm -hmm. One can imagine a stimulus payment that you want to get into somebody's hand. How long would it take? I don't know, like 30 seconds. Imagine what that could do to assistance for people. That all sounds to me pretty fantastic. I love the idea that counterfeiting and kind of all the trackability of it goes down as well. Mm -hmm. So I like all of that. That seems to me good. (laughs) The final piece of it is the political economic angle on this, which is, is this somehow a threat to the U.S. dollar? What I think it is, is an acceleration of the fact that every sovereign will have digital versions of their currency very shortly. And this will accelerate Janet Yellen and Jay Powell's efforts to do that. And that seems to me also good, because then we can all enjoy the benefits of this. So to me, I say, sounds great, which is I get a better tool from an economic policy angle, I get a better tool for stopping a lots of crazy activities that I can't right now track. And I don't get kind of necessarily at least any undoing of some global economic order because everyone's going to do this and it'll become just table stakes in that sense. I think the one piece that is really complicated is sanctions, which is specifically sanctions, Mm -hmm. you know, which is the ability to say to a bunch of oligarchs, you can't use the U.S. financial system because no bank that uses the U.S. financial system will do that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I still think that's going to be a very powerful sanction, you know, no matter what. So to me, it feels kind of like all good. And I know I'm usually the cranky old man who hates technology, but like (laughs) I look at this and I'm like, this is all good. What am I missing, Rebecca? The thing that makes me really jumpy about this technology is the surveillance. Yes. Mm -hmm. The idea that every transaction I make with anyone goes straight to the Chinese government or the American government or wherever. Is there something you want to share about your activities with us about (laughs) why this makes you so... No, I'm kidding. Rebecca does not want Jerome Powell to know that she bought a burrito today. (laughs) I mean, you know, one way to think about that today is with Apple Pay and with everything else that happens, the trail is there. Mm -hmm. I think in a way what China's doing is more about the Chinese companies who dominate the payment systems Mm -hmm. that actually are kind of superseding the government role. I think that's a part of this. Because right now, Rebecca, who knows about everything that the Chinese citizen is doing with payments? And the answer is, it's known. It just happens not to be known by the government, 
right? Mm -hmm. well, but wait, the fact that somebody already knows all our data doesn't make me feel better about that. <laughs> right. I'm a big fan of regulating privacy. Yeah. I think this is a serious problem. And my excessive Dorito consumption is something I'd rather keep to myself. <laughs> but it just makes me nervous, yeah. the idea that we're watching everything in the economy. Mihir, you raise such a good point. And I think you've got to be right, which is that the rest of the central banks will eventually follow. And so we'll all just be living in a new digital currency world. And so it's just a, one more evolution of the system. But on this question of the sanctions, my own view is that if the U.S. government hadn't overused sanctions so much as like the standard response to anything we don't like, let's throw some sanctions. And they are really powerful because they restrict you from doing business with anybody who touches the U.S. financial system anywhere in the world. So this extraterritoriality. I kind of think that the appetite to go around the dollar system is a consequence of overuse of sanctions by U.S. policymakers. And do you think those sanctions work, Rawi, by the way? I mean, like, I got to tell you, I'm like a little skeptical. I know that we use them all over the place, right? But like, has it been manifest in different policies in Russia? The answer is no for big questions, like whether the Russians will give Crimea back to Ukraine. Right. The idea that if you sanction some people or some corporations, they'll like give a piece of territory back. Nobody thought that the sanctions would do that. Yep. But for all sorts of business that happens connected to Russian corporations, there are European corporations who have relationships with Russian corporations who've been obliged to rethink all sorts of policies because they're afraid of getting in trouble with the US government because they have other business that touches the US financial system. So in terms of like creating political change, sanctions have not been a policy tool that's more effective than diplomacy and not right. as effective as than war. Like, But you got to do something, right, to express your displeasure. But they certainly matter a lot. And if you can wander around the halls of European companies, they will just tell you how infuriated they are that they have to live by American laws because of the dollar-centric system. Right. And would they rather live by Chinese laws? And there might be like a be careful what you wish for element to this. And I don't think that they would prefer it, but I me here it gives us the sense of like inevitability. So like eventually we will move away from the dollar-based system. So this is one way that that will unfold. Although people have been saying that for 40 years or as long as I can remember, meaning we're moving the dollars in decline and so on and so forth. Yeah. But I think, Rebecca, it's not that they'd prefer that, but I think they'd prefer not to have one person tell them what to do. For, sure. for them, it's about choices. And this can come undone because of the desire for choices and the ability to neutralize the power of somebody. So could we imagine a world which would be a little bit more complex, but people were routinely transacting in a wide variety of currencies? I think so. And so to yeah. the question of our friends in Europe, if there were a digital euro that they could use to transact and not touch the US dollar, then they could live by their own laws of their country and of the European Union without living by the laws of the United States. I guess this is just making me wonder even more deeply about the mystery of what undergirds the dollar as a reserve currency and exorbitant privilege, you know, which is to say, okay, so everybody's got a digital piece here. What does that do to the actual sources of this crazy status? And if everyone has the same abilities, then why don't the same drivers of that demand for dollars continue and persist? And that we're just in the same world, if it's just table stakes? Mm -hmm. Or is there something specific? And I guess it is that 
with these digital currencies, banks no longer play the role they were playing. So then the hold of the U.S. on the banks is no longer the lever. Right. And I buy that in sanctions, but I'm not sure I buy that in trade and the reserve currency more generally and the demand for U.S. assets more generally. If we think about why the dollar persists as a reserve currency, there are a few big reasons that we always hear. One is that there's not really a great alternative to it yet. Right. For a reserve currency, you want to basically know what the value is going to be. And you want to know that everybody's sort of denominating in the same way so that you can compare values across multiple currencies. But I think one of the main things is that you need to have a large liquid market for assets denominated in that currency. Right. And so your point that it's like on the edges of dollar centrality without going directly as a challenge to the dollar at the moment has to be right. And then I got to think, I love all this other stuff. Like I love the idea of imagine the PPP program with a digital currency. Yeah. I think that's kind of cool. I think Rebecca's concerns are the mm. hardest to get around. And they always are, Rebecca, which is the privacy story, <laughs> which is how do we reconcile ourselves to that? And I have this creeping feeling that it will evolve as it often does with us letting it slip away without necessarily really fully interrogating all the consequences of it <laughs> because convenience, because so damn good that we just let it go that way. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like we might be on the verge then of a genuinely historic trend toward digital currencies. And this is the beginning of that story, which is super interesting and exciting and a little bit nerve wracking in some ways too. And the nerve wracking elements I hear you both bring up are really interesting. And they bring us back to the first conversation that we had, which is that if we believe in democratic accountability, lots of things are going to feel okay. And the more we feel like that democratic accountability doesn't exist, the more these moments of centralizing authority and moments of transforming the system so that monitoring and privacy are much more complicated questions, then the less we feel great about all of the benefits. Okay, so Rawi, what are you going to go spend your digital currency on? What's your recommendation? (laughs) It's a television show called Line of Duty. Oh, You like it? I love Line of Duty. So good. And then we ran out of seasons to watch. Total crisis. But the new one's coming, right? The new one is coming and you can stream it somewhere, but I don't know how to do that. No, no, but you got to tell everybody what the Line of Duty is about. It's basically like the equivalent of the American part of the police department that's called internal affairs. So the part of the police that investigates corrupt police officers. And the relationships are really profound and the issues are complicated and the acting and writing both amazing kind of edge of your seat stuff. And when I ran out of line of duty, we noticed this New York Times article And it was something like the great British crime dramas you should be streaming now. And so I've been exploring these other great British crime dramas. And you know what I realized? They're all great. This is a man after my own heart. They're so good. All the British cop shows. You go Happy Valley, Shetland. Absolutely. Grantchester. They're all spectacular British cop shows, man. (laughs) 201. We should go binge a bunch of British cop shows together. I would do that anytime. I'm sorry. You didn't know this? I mean. (laughs) I've been pushing British cop shows for a while. I love this whole genre. I think it's fantastic. So that's my pick. British cop shows. British coppers. And this is even better because it's about bent cops. 
you know, ben just coppers. use the line. <laughs> ben <Yeah>. coppers. <laughs> All right. Very good. So line of duty and the whole genre. Okay, Rebecca, what do you got? So we're going to stick with the British theme here. Very good. Because I have fallen in love with a book about the greatest writer in history, who, of course, was William Shakespeare. And this is a book called Will in the World. Oh. The book is marvelous. It is, on the face of it, perhaps maybe a biography of Shakespeare. But what it is actually is a mystery story. It's about the relationship between the world that Shakespeare lived in which Greenblatt knows in this incredible detail. Mm -hmm. You learn a ton about Elizabethan England and why are there so many bawdy houses in Shakespearean plays? Well, Mm. let me tell you what was going on in London. And it's about the relationship between the person and the place. Both why did he write the plays that he did, when he did, but then also what kind of man was he? It's like he takes you along for this amazing ride. You learn a ton about Elizabethan England. He illuminates the plays in a very deep way and really answers a question which I'd always had, like, who was this man? Why did he write these plays? Where did he come from? So, Will in the World by Stephen Greenblatt. Love it. They should have an Elizabethan crime drama, actually. (laughs) That would build on those strengths. So, my pick is... A while back, I endorsed Last Chance You, the basketball season. Mm -hmm. I didn't mention that the soundtrack is stunningly good. Hmm. And this is like one of those things that happens where you just follow a thread and it just takes you back to a place that you remember loving. So in that particular case, part of the soundtrack was Lauryn Hill, who I loved. Mm -hmm. But then part of the soundtrack is this Afro pop star, Fela Kuti, who I grew up loving and who is absolutely amazing. So if you love funk and you love instrumental funk, which you want to have on in the background and when you go for a walk and you just want to put a little juice in your step, Fela Kuti is the man to go to. And it's still 50 years later and I still think he is the best funk pop star there is. Wow. And even in 2021, Fela Kuti will get your blood pumping. Uh, So my recommendation is if you want some music to work at where you don't have a lot of words, but you want a little rhythm in your step, my pick is the Afro pop or the Fela Kuti playlist on Spotify. I love it. And I love that it took you back. And I love those moments of like, and then I went exploring and then all of a sudden I found myself back home, but it looked different and felt different. I love that one. Oh, that was lovely. All right. Thanks for listening. This is After Hours from the HBR Podcast Network. You're growing a business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. 
Support for the show comes from Brooks Running. I'm so excited because I have been a runner, gosh, my entire adult life. And for as long as I can remember, I have run with Brooks Running Shoes. Now I'm running with a pair of Ghost 16s from Brooks. Incredibly lightweight shoes that have really soft cushioning. It feels just right when I'm hitting my running trail that's just out behind my house. You now can take your daily run in the better than ever Ghost 16. You can visit brooksrunning.com to learn more. 